Welcome to WNHHFM 103.5, Just In Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us, with people making a difference about ideas that matter. Today, our guest is Eric Clemens, CEO of Concorp. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us. Thank you for having me, and, and good day to you. Councilman, I, I appreciate the, the offer to um, be in community with you. No, thank you. I, uh, I, I have seen you around. You are, are one of those people that is everywhere. I swear you have clones. <laughs> um, but I, I, I wanted to, to get to know you and know you with the community. And so, you know, how did CONCAP become Concorp, right? And I'm sure you get this all the time. Yeah, yeah. There there seems to always be confusion between both organizations. And I happen to um, have the great honor of running both at the same time. I'm running, I'm CEO of Concat and Concorp, actually founding CEO of both. And so there are two individual organizations, two 501c3s doing different work, but at the same time building community. And so CONCAT um, was created, I think we were fully operational in 2012, Councilman. Um, it took a year to build the organization. It's a replication of Bill Strickland's Manchester Bidwell model in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so, again, I was the founding CEO. And how that happened was, you know, I was running a large organization here in New Haven and got a call from someone from the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. And this was back in 2010. And um, uh, Bill Strickland, who I think is the preeminent social entrepreneur in this country, mm. was in town and he was meeting with a guy named Carlton Highsmith. And on the table was this idea called the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology, it was being spearheaded by Will Ginsburg at the Community Foundation as well as Kevin Maya and Morna Borgstrom, both um, at the time were at Yale New Haven Hospital. Kevin was the head of all of uh, human resources for the health system. Marna Borgstrom, um, as everyone knows, was the CEO of the uh, Yale Health Systems. And so they had this idea that this, this, this thought of CONCAT could materialize in New Haven through the efforts of Bill Strickland and Manchester Bidwell, as well as Will Ginsburg from the Community Foundation and Carlton Highsmith. And so I had this long three hour conversation one day with Bill, with Bill Strickland and Carlton Highsmith about saving the world. Hey. We never talked about um, this idea called the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology. And some months later, I got another call um, they had did a national search. They were still looking. They were deeply interested in, in, in me. And so we reinvigorated the conversation about standing up this new organization. And so I finally came on with my wife's permission um, around, <laughs> and I say that seriously. Um, I came on around June of 2011 and started building the organization. And the organization became very successful, um, not just because of me, 
but because I was able to hire some incredible people who believed in the power of community and had an incredible board of directors who are who have maintained that I've maintained that same board um, throughout for the last 10, 11 years. Concorp came about because we were thinking about the next iteration of impact. How do we how do we do more for the community, given that we are part of the social contract? Mm. And we had trained um, hundreds of folks, Justin, in our medical uh, in our medical training programs. And we built a culinary school, as you know, um, because I didn't do a good job of addressing the reentry population. And for whatever reason, culinary is more forgiving to folks who have been incarcerated at one point um, in their life. And so we started building this thing called Concorp, which actually the idea came to me from a dear friend of mine, Leon Bailey, who was at the Community Foundation. And Leon, again, who was a friend, called me into his office one day. This is a true story. And said, I have an idea for you. And this was maybe a year and a half after running Concat. He said, Concat is going to be so successful, you're going to have to do something else. <laughs> and I have this idea called Concorp I want to share with you. And so in, this was in 2013. And he showed me this idea, which I thought was amazing. And it was really an outgrowth of the success of, of Concat. So I kept it for five, four or five years. And not until it was time did I socialize the idea and my, my board chair, Carlton Highsmith, and some other folks, and we started building Concorp. But the idea of Concorp came from a, a friend of mine named Leon Bailey. Wow. The manifestation of Concorp was created by myself in, in the board chair and Paul McRaven. Our, my the now COO of Concord. Wow! It, so that is uh, that that's you know something that really touched on what you said is that this is not just a you thing, but this has been a a thing of others empowering and sharing in that vision. Yes. Yeah. Can you give us the synopsis of the three hours of how to save the world? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wish I could remember the conversation, but I will say and admit that in the midst of that conversation, I had a revelation listening and watching these two older men who were incredibly successful in their own right. Mm. And the revelation was, I, at one point in my life, could be them. Mm. And that was very, very inspirational and aspirational for me. And so the, one of the reasons why I said yes to the offers of coming to build and run ConCat was, one, these two towering figures I could actually be them. Mm. Two, I felt like Concat would allow me um, to build community in a way that I had not even thought about before. But to your point, which is really important, 
you know, everything I have been able to do, I've been able to do with the help of people who share the same values and the same level of courage that I, I have. And that makes all the difference in the world. And so a lot of my success has been in large part due to people who believe one in my leadership, but they believe in the transformation of community and people. Can you talk about what community means? I, I had the pleasure of being on a panel with you a couple of years back and you talked about kind of your upbringing, but what, what does community mean to you? Cause we, we all say it, we're all in it, but what does that look like for Eric Clemens? Yeah. Community means to me a responsibility mm. on the part of myself to be the best servant that I can possibly be such that people beyond the conditions that they are in or see can believe that there are greater possibilities for them because they are in relationship with me and what I have been called to do. Mm. And that could be anybody. It is about authentic relationship with folks because of their proximity to whatever it is that I bring to their, to their lives, that they can see themselves greater, better, and maybe even different. Mm. And that hopefully, Justin, transcends onto not only those folks who are in proximity to them that I won't be prox in proximity to, but also to create a spirit of that such that it, it lives long enough that those who are yet to be born will be impacted and affected by it. No, that, that, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's one thing that this generation, this generation, my generation, those younger, um, you know, there, it is a big question for us. How do we build for the next generation? especially when you see climate change, when you see all the things that are going on, how to have that presence in the present, in the moment, but also how do you build and move forward? Um, you mentioned the social contract, right? Um, you know, what is the social contract to you? I, I feel that there used to be this idea that businesses, people uh, in positions of power had a responsibility to community. And, and I see in this vision of Concorp and Next uh, and, and these institutions that I see that civic engagement again, but what what is the social contract to you? Yeah, uh, to me, the major stipulation within the social contract is those who have should always do, mm. right? And so, whether the having means resources, whether having means time, whatever it is that you can contribute to society, then you bear a responsibility to do so. That to me is the essence of the social contract. 
And so for me, the thrust of my being, whether it be through a vehicle such as an institution or whether it be me, just myself, the thrust of who I am should always really exemplify and demonstrate the most fundamental tenet of our existence, in my opinion, is to help people. That's it. I've done very well in life, not because I am the smartest person, not because I am the most strategic person or even the most courageous person. I've done well in life because I chose to devote my life to helping people. Man, that, that you surmised that uh, three hours real quick. No. <laughs> <laughs> For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, here with Eric Clemens. Uh, you know, what I think everyone at this point has seen the renderings, the pictures of uh, the revitalment of Dick's Well. And so, you know, what is your vision for Dick's Well? And I, I assume, you know, when you're building brick and mortar, you're thinking beyond your lifetime. And so, you know, what is the vision you have for Dixwell and how did that come about? Yeah. So, so let me let me go back to your initial question um, when we first started. Um, and I alluded to this idea of Concord being very different from Concat and that Concord was an outgrowth of the success of Concat, where um, it was important to me, at least, that you know, the hundreds of folks who have been trained in our phlebotomy program, our medical billing and coding program, our culinary program, um, that they would not be the working poor. And that I realized, just given the fact that folks who came to CONCAP to train in our market-relevant trainings and graduated or are now employed, they see the world differently. And if they see the world differently, they see community differently. And if they see community differently, then they are living and walking in the world with a deeper sense of hope. And so what could we do? How, what could we do to create a world for folks who are seeing the world differently? And so here comes this idea of Concord. And our idea really roughly was to aggressively address the, languished, the languishing poverty mm-hmm. in Newhallville and Dixwell especially. Those two neighborhoods, especially because they are primarily black neighborhoods, people who who are black living in those neighborhoods for generations who have endured Mm. a sense, a deep, deep and wide poverty and endured promises and dreams deferred. Mm. And so for us, it was it was important that we lifted up those two communities first. And so we knew, we had a mutual friend who knew the owner of C-Town, the supermarket that had left, I think it lived maybe nine months Mm. on Dixwell Avenue. Wow. And um, we realized that one, C-Town was in the plaza. It was, we had the opportunity to buy that building and hopefully try and turn the plaza around by by redesigning and 
repurposing that particular building where we were going to do what we're doing now. We were going to broadcast a radio show, a live radio show, bring in people to to sit on Dixwell Avenue and talk about and, and tell stories. And then we were going to have a cafe there and we were, it was going to be a, a small place that we hoped would um, ignite the neighborhood in a, in a positive way. The mayor at the time, uh, Mayor Tony Harp, um, did not like the idea because she said we weren't thinking broad enough and deep enough about impact. And she was absolutely correct. And she told us to go back to the drawing board. And so we then, we being myself, Carlton Highsmith, and Paul McRaven, who had just left uh, First Niagara Bank, he had retired and was serving as a consultant for us. And we got together and put together a property acquisition strategy where we would um, hopefully in due time um, purchase the um, buildings on the plaza. While at the same time, Justin, we master planned the entire site at seven and a half acres, the plaza, including the Elks Hall. We master planned the entire site and then programmed the, this site uh, through information from the community. And so I was able to attend every meeting I could that had to do with Dixwell and Newhallville communities and listen to what the community wanted, what they needed, and what they yearned for. And that's how we did our programming. And then co-published a community index, which I think you might be familiar with, with the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven and Data Haven, with the also um, presidents of the community management teams of Dixwell, who was Nina, who was Nina Silva at the time, and Newhallville, who is Kim Harris. And so we, we put together that community index, Newhallville and Dixwell Community Index, because we wanted to be very thoughtful about our implementation in this signature project we call Concat Place on Dixwell. And so the idea was, one, bringing economic infrastructure and capital formation to a Black historic neighborhood that has languished in poverty for 60 to 70 years. How do we put money into this neighborhood that deserves it? Secondly, and equally important is that, was how do we create beauty and that beauty create dignity mm. in that particular neighborhood? And so what you see in those renderings is our response to what the community said they wanted and needed and yearned for, as well as our value system, mm. right? The idea of beauty being transformational to people, especially people whose dreams and promises have been deferred, and thereby dignity for folks who, because of the way that plaza has declined, was not experiencing the dignity, in my opinion, that they deserved and, and, warrant, and was warranted. So that was really the vision. Aggressively addressing poverty, and everyone who knows me knows that I believe that poverty is the most insidious thing ever created. Mm. A lot of people think it's racism. I don't think it's racism. I think racism is the weapon of poverty. Mm. And so how do we, how do we address the poverty that, that folks are exp experiencing and have been experiencing for decades? And how do we bring service 
and beauty and dignity to a neighborhood that deserves it. That was the vision. You, you, you mentioned that uh, earlier. Uh, this right, these two communities are predominantly black, right? Uh, generationally, um, and so some of the work that you y'all have done, right, has been around black businesses, uh, supporting black businesses. Uh, why? You know, why is that important to you as a person? And why should that be important to others, especially in the context of uh, of capital, right? Uh, yeah. Racism is a concern, but why, why, why is it important to have these anchor institutions? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I think personally it's important to me because I believe that um, entrepreneurship creates freedom. Mm-hmm. Not everyone will be rich and wealthy due to their working or their, the business that they own. However, and I think it's important that people experience a level of freedom and that freedom gain you a level of power. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about power over, I'm talking about power to be. Mm. And I think as it relates to freedom and power, I think black neighborhoods and black people for the most part um, are always left out of that conversation. And so I believe the advent of entrepreneurship allows one to create their own conversation as it relates to freedom and power. Mm. That's number one. Number two, as you know, during the pandemic, businesses were shuttering at a record clip, especially black businesses across the country. And if in fact they shuttered and closed down, it would be almost impossible for them to reinvigorate themselves or even reinvent themselves without capital. And as you know, historically and still today, Black business owners are the ones who have been shut out of access to capital for their businesses. And so it was important to us, given the times we were in, that we try and help, if not save, Black businesses in New Haven. Because if we are talking about economic infrastructure and capital formation, it starts with the businesses in that community, in those particular communities. So that was really important to us. And again, part of the social contract. You, one of the things that I've seen y'all work on uh, is uh, cannabis as industry coming in. And so one as a policymaker, something that I always think about um, is that policy can definitely be systematic, right? It can be oppressive. Um, in terms of cannabis, it's something that for generations we saw people locked up, we saw people disenfranchised, um, and now it's being deregulated and, and monetized. Um, what, 
as a business owner, as a person who is employing people, educating people to go into the job market, how are you looking at these new industries? Um, and then also, how do we shift policy, right? Uh, because I, as I see deregulation, I always still see incarceration, right? I still see the flip side of it. So how are you thinking about, you know, these industries being deregulated? And then how do we talk about, have the conversation about policy and, and pushing policymakers, institutions, and community members to have the narratives and stories to talk about how to move forward? Yeah. I think first, when we, when we have the conversations about policy and moving forward, um, and all the things that you are now seeing being untangled um, for the purpose of creating new economies. We have to talk about being organized first. Mm. What is it that communities want, whether they are black, brown, or whatever? What, what is the game for that particular community? And then how do we go forward to get what we think we should receive? I think that's first and foremost. And we have to come to a consensus on that. We can't agree with everything, but I think it's important that the top of mind of those conversations and the, the, the center of the heart, our hearts in those conversations should always be about the people who are behind us, the young people and those who have yet to be born. What are, what, what are we doing to create a world for them so they won't have to endure what we've had to endure? That's really important. Um, secondly, we, um, when, when the deregulating of cannabis, when the conversation began and then the mechanics were put together, we chose not to get into that business mm. because it, it, was, it was off mission, quite frankly. Mm. Definitely for CONCAP. However, what we chose to do, Justin, was to write, we, we hired uh, Dr. Fred McKinney. I don't know if you know Dr. Fred. Um, he's no. actually a board member of CONCAT. Do you know, you, don't, you know Dr. Fred? I know of him, I don't know him. <laughs> yeah, an amazing man um, who is an economist by trade, but he's also a, 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 uh, a civil rights warrior Me. still today. And we hired him and he wrote a manifesto for black communities, in particular, New Hallville and Dixwell. And they wrote it in a way where he informed the community of what is about to happen, how communities should be prepared mm. and how to go forward in that preparation. And so that's, um, that's what we wanted. We wanted to be advocates for community. Separate from that, but somehow a, a little bit akin, we are always, especially CONCAT, looking at the marketplace because we want to make sure that we are training folks in what we think is market relevant in terms of jobs that could be had for people in community. And you see now we have created this new training called BioLaunch mm. with the help, um, huge help 
and brain power of a dear friend named Craig Cruz. And Craig is an incredible entrepreneur who started a couple of companies and, and the companies are huge now, uh, one being our Venus. And Craig has been a friend for a while and been talking about how do we grow the black middle class through the advent of the biosciences and biopharma. And so we put together a training program that we call BioLaunch, where we are now actively and intentionally training people in our communities to have entry into the bioscience and biopharma economy that is now growing by leaps and bounds in New Haven. There is a proliferation of bioscience and biopharma ventures right downtown, as you know, such that there is housing being created and built for the migration of folks coming to New Haven to be a part of that economy. And so we are now training folks to be a part of that economy as well. And so we are always, we always have our finger on the pulse of the markets so that we can first advance our mission to help people be in those markets. Secondly, hopefully <clears throat> we can address uh, poverty through, the, through those means. I, uh, for those of y'all who are listening, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, here with Eric Clemens, talking about uh, New Haven's economy, talking about job growth, businesses. Um, I, I'm going to add to your CV, mind reader. Uh, <laughs> one of my questions to you was, you know, how are we preparing uh, to get into the marketplace of eds and meds um those are the jobs that are coming to new haven um as you pointed out right housing is being built for this population and yet all the jobs are so close walking distance but the education uh, uh barriers and the uh opportunity gaps uh, exist and so you talked about this program that you're working on um how do we and this is the you know billion dollar question how do we reach the people in between right because i on a daily basis i live in new hall right on a daily basis i see people my age a little younger a little older who have lost hope right um but they're in their prime years right it is finding the pathways uh, to, to, to gainful employment and finding the pathways to something that gives them joy and restores that hope. How, how are we to, to, you know, what should the city be doing? What should policy makers be doing to address that group of people? I, I think you start with um, the fact that the city of New Haven to my knowledge, has yet to conceive of a wide-ranging plan to address the poverty that has languished in this city, I'm sure for over a century. There is no real plan to address poverty in a city that has a high level of poverty. That's a problem. Um, I think that I think that plan, uh, if there is one, should be 
hard line connected to the school system. Mm. I think there is, and this is no fault of anyone, I think there's too much blame. And then the casting of blame and the arguing of ensuring that one doesn't get faulted for what is not going well. Not only do the kids be, become left behind, but the, the blame game is theater for children. Mm. And so what you've had is just really bad behavior by adults who have been given the authority to ensure that children learn good behavior. And so I think that needs to be tightened up. I think the public discourse around education has not been fruitful for anyone. So that really needs to be tightened up. And I think that people who are living in modest means and are struggling to get ahead because of the conditions that have been created around them and the systems that have been put in place to ensure those conditions are maintained, those people should be giving, should be given money. I truly believe that. Mm. Because it has to be not only a spiritual pain, but a psychic pain to live in the conditions that one sees every day and see two miles down the road or to your right and left, people who have everything. I can only imagine how that feels. And so that needs to be at least discussed. At least have discussions around strategizing to cure that. And so I think it starts there, Justin. I don't think there is a magic wand to any of this. I think, you know, we have to be intentional a first about caring about each other. And when you see people who are not who are not um part of the the um oh boy when you see a, a swath or communities of people who are not part of the huge offering of things, it, it's not fair. And you see that because people don't care. Because if they cared, you would not see that. So we first have to care about each other. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I often, the juxtaposition between, you know, being, we are in one of the wealthiest states in the U.S., uh, one of the wealthiest places on the planet is about 20 miles away. We have one of the wealthiest universities in our backyard, um, and at the same time, you can track people by zip code and see life expectancy opportunities and you can even map it out over generations of the likelihood of people achieving just basic standards of yeah. 
being able to take care of themselves. I, uh, I, I, I definitely agree with you. It, it, it's a, a, a care issue. Uh, I, I, as, as a policymaker, as a person who's always thinking, you know, I, I guess a, a thing that I think about is things like how do we address things like gentrification? How do we address things like displacement? And how do you, because you can't, as we're working to edify, uplift, and empower the next generation, you still have this whole constituency that is grasping for opportunities and or enable to, to, to I, I won't say enable, because I, I think there, there's always the opportunity, there's always the, the, the possibility of empowering those individuals, but I don't see necessarily the investment. And so how do we, how do we engage in good faith about conversations about gentrification? How do we engage in good faith conversations about, uh, well, wealth distribution, right? Because I often, I, I see it be one or the other where it's Yale does so much good, how could you criticize or they're not doing enough or we're building housing and that's so great, but then you look at the housing and the prices are 17, 23, 3,300 to which I don't know who's living there, but I, <laughs> not me for some time, right? Yeah. I, I think the conversation in the public discourse, which there should be, should not just sit in the center of Yale University. Mm. Um, I, I, just, I just don't agree with that. You know, I think people need to know that not everyone is receiving their daily bread, right? That is just the truth. And... I think there is always a tension between self-preservation and self-discovery, mm -hmm. right? That people um, who, for the most part, usually people who have more than enough, their identities are wrapped up in having more than enough and what that brings to them. Mm -hmm. And I believe they believe that it's a zero-sum game, that if I don't have... Or if, I, if, if someone who has nothing gets a little bit, then that little bit was taken from them. And that is not the case. And so we have to have the courage to, one, discover something about ourselves in a way that can contribute to those who are struggling. Secondly, I, I, I believe, in, and I'm a, I'm a believer in kind of the, the, the now commodity of diversity, equity, inclusion, mm. right? I do, I think it's really important. I think it, it's created a language for folks who have, would have never talked about certain things to now have discussions about these things. However, you cannot have those discussions in a real way, in an authentic way about those things, whether it be racism, classism, or what have you, without having an authentic conversation about reconciliation. Mm. And I think folks are not helping one another because there is no real reconciliation first. Mm. That there is no real proximity 
to the suffering and struggle of all people, whether you have everything or not. And when people don't really know each other in that very intimate and vulnerable way, help will never come. Mm. And so I, I think you have to start there instead of pro trying to program ourselves out of this mess. <laughs> and then on top of being in authentic relationship to the extent that we can, we can now come together and start working on society. But you can't work on society without working on individual people first. Mm. Right, Concat and Concord would not exist effectively had we not been in intimate relationship with the people that we have chosen to serve. Mm. Right, Concat Place on Dixwell would not have gotten to the place now where we are about to demolish the plaza and the Elks Hall to build anew, had that plan not been community design centered. Mm. Everything we are delivering was based on what the community said they wanted and needed. And it takes that level of relationship to, be, to, to, to really effectively move the needle. Because you can't be in community if you are not in relationship with the mm. individuals who are in community. No, I'm, uh, uh, you, you got me almost preaching, being like, amen. <laughs> uh, what gives you hope? Hmm. Everything I do, personally and professionally, is a, a progressive move towards love. Mm. And I believe hope is the seed of love. Mm. And so if I'm allowed to wake up in the morning, that's hope. Mm. I think, Justin, we are nothing if we have if if we don't have hope. We have absolutely nothing. Well. <laughs> hope is the thing that gets you out of bed to come and do it again. The thing you did yesterday, the thing you did last week, the thing you did last year, the reason you are doing it because is because of hope. Uh, sometimes I, I think I could, I'm energized by righteous indignation. But no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's definitely hope to it. Uh, in this time, in this moment, in this, in this, uh, place that we are in right um how are you feeling about the mission right because there are so many things that are going on around us um there there is displacement there is climate change there is right every other week there seems to be some tragedy how are you feeling in the midst of all of that as you're working on these projects? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's something that I, I think about all the time. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it goes to the question you just asked me prior to is, you know, what gives me hope? And 
I think for me, I'll go back to what I said earlier. You know, again, the fundamental tenet of humanity, which I believe also is the fundamental tenet of my faith, is treating people with goodness, no matter what is around you. That is counter to the idea or the demonstration of goodness. You still have to do good in the world. And I believe in the end, I truly believe this, in the end, goodness will win. I truly believe that. It is the thing that sustains me as I endeavor to do this work. That goodness and small acts of goodness and kindness are our daily bread. I truly believe that. And so that is the thing that keeps me going. That if, you know, if I can, I think one of the most powerful things you can say to anyone in the world that could be even life-changing sometimes is hello. <laughs> I believe that. And I say that because hello tells that person that you see them. Mm. And if people feel seen, then they know that they matter. Mm. Right? And if they feel like they matter, then the day can get better. That a lot of the things that you are seeing that really create despair and negativity and all of these things is because people don't think they matter. Mm. They don't think themselves that they matter. And I'm not just talking about people who have nothing. I'm talking about people who have everything as well. They don't, some of, the, some of those folks don't think that they matter in the world either. And if I felt like I didn't matter in the world, why would I think anyone else did? Hmm. And so I, I think just saying hello to somebody or just demonstrating a level of goodness and civility can change the minds of people. I truly believe that. Well, I, uh, as we come near our end, I, I get to ask my two favorite questions of people. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? Um, what projects, you know, how do people get involved? That's, those are great, great questions. One, people can find me at E. Clemens, E. C. L. E. M. O. N. S. at concat, C. O. N. 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 C. A. T. dot org, or E. Clemens at concorp, C. O. N. N. C. O. R. P. dot org. Um, I failed to mention also, you know, we we purchased this large building, as you know, um, that we now call the Lab at Concorp, where we are incubating mostly Black businesses in that building, and now have a new business called Recess Cafe. We renovated that space, um, had an incredible ribbon cutting that I don't think you were able to attend because I, I looked for you. I did not see you, sir. <laughs> um, and so you can, you know, just get involved, go on the website to both organizations, conncat.org, conncorp.org, and look at what we're doing. Um, and, and if you can find ways that you can contribute and advance the mission, please Give me a, a, a shoot me an email 
and I will be more than happy to meet or talk with you. And my, my favorite question to always ask people, it's always the hardest question, is what is a song that is close to you or something that we can remember you by? Yeah, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Okay, okay. Yes. I, uh, I, you were prepared, you studied. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Marvin Gaye, what's going on? When you listen, it's prophetic. When you listen to it and you think about now, the questions he's asking are the questions we are asking now. Well, thank you, uh, Eric, for your time. Thank you for, for being in community uh, and look forward to connecting with you. Uh, for those of y'all who are listening, this is Just In Time Conversations, WN. HHFM 103.5. Let's continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Yeah. So, y'all, we're trying to plane leaving? All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you know I'll never go. Even though you know I will, I'm a traveling man, moving through places, space and time, got a lot of things.